episode 351 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson, where lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government, and the things we're about to say are agreed to by none of the following. Our institutions, our clients, our friends, our family, our dogs, and maybe not even us three weeks from today. We're going to have a, instead of an interview, we're going to have a dialogue that I did with Adam Hickey, who's one of the senior national security officials of the Justice Department, talking about the OFAC decision. If you contribute to paying ransomware to one of the ransomware gangs that we have sanctioned, you could be a subject to sanctions as well, or at least to fines. And I thought it was interesting enough and timely enough, I actually did this with him at RSA, that we just run the the panel discussion, which also features Catherine Lotrianti as the moderator, a thankless task, given Adam and I and our proclivity for speaking out as we go. I, a thankless task indeed, but she does a great job. So that'll be our interview. But first, let's get to our news roundup. David Chris is here. He's a founder of Culper Partners. And it says here, I should say he has two decades of experience in intelligence, law enforcement, and security issues. In fact, it would take you two decades to read everything he has written on those topics. David? Uh, it would, because you would keep falling asleep as you were reading. <laughs> but we're getting close to three decades now at this point, believe it or not. Scary. Okay, Nick Weaver is here, back by popular demand, computer science professor at UC Berkeley. Nick, good to have you. <laughs> Thank you. And I, Maury Schenk, uh, our London-based lawyer and technologist. Maury, great to have you back. Great to be here. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and the host and chief provocateur in today's program. The Biden administration is beginning to get its legs under it on a variety of cyber issues. Uh, and one of them, probably the most important, is it started to take action on supply chain issues. Maury, can you give us a feel for what the administration is trying to do? There's a big story here, which is that U.S.-China bifurcation on digital issues. And what the order does is a 100-day study led by the assistant to the president for national security, Jake Sullivan, and for economic policy, Keith Hennessy, working with lots of departments to study supply chain issues across a variety of industries. They've divided it up by different Department of Commerce, et cetera, who's going to do what report, but includes chips, pharmaceuticals, batteries, rare earth minerals, et cetera. And they're going to look at shortages like the current chip shortage we have. At the same time, a couple of other things that are going on. Senator Tom Cotton just came out with a report called Beat China Targeted Decoupling in the Economic Long War. And he compared the battle to China with the battle with Nazi Germany or the USSR and suggested that we should pursue economic, strategic economic decoupling. And the Institute for International and Strategic Studies has come out with a study that says China is doing digital deals with some of our best allies, Indonesia, Israel, UAE, Korea. So there's this huge strategic look at do we have U.S. dominated tech supply chains and try to push China to one side or to the other side of the world? So what I was struck by is that apart from a little bit of chest beating, the the Tom Cotton paper, which he wrote, that's pretty well written, uh, 60 some pages plus footnotes, uh, it's 
it could easily have been written by the Biden administration as a background paper for the supply chain order that they issued. There's uh, even the industries that they say are critical to get on top of first, like rare earths and semiconductors, same industries. Uh, there's a remarkable degree of consensus uh, that the U.S. has to do something in these areas. Yeah, it's clearly a bipartisan consensus. There is no question that China wants to start dominating these industries. Chips in particular, when they see their companies like Huawei get caught, cut off from U.S. chips. And, and economic security in these areas is means other kinds of security and soft power and things like that. So I think people across, it's a hard decades long problem to address. And I think there's starting to be a real bipartisan consensus that we've got to start to take a look at this. Well, we'll say I think Cotton's right to call this a long war. And I don't think the U.S. government, the U.S. as a country does well in long wars. And how well it's going, it's too soon to tell. Yeah, that's an interesting point. With respect to China, they are probably the country that does the best at this. They have 50 year plans. And they, those get belittled by some of the commentators, but they actually have real concrete actions behind these 50-year plans. And I agree with you, the U.S. is not great at fighting against that. And there's a few things that uh, late-stage capitalism is exacerbating on this. So rare earths, China is able to dominate because they just don't care about the externalities, that it's, these, they're not all that rare it's just the mining process is particularly dirty. And so China is just happy to do that. Semiconductors is weird. So semiconductor manufacturing per se, China doesn't actually have all that much. And they're trying to get it for their own domestic stuff so they can't get cut off in the future. But other parts of the microelectronic supply chain, China just dominates. So if you want to build systems, you're going to build circuit boards. And the circuit boards are so much cheaper if you get them from China. The assembly cost is so much cheaper in China. And there's a real question of, is the U.S. even willing to compete? Yeah. Or can it find a way to construct an alternative supply chain that is the anti-China supply chain in which they use Vietnam and Indonesia and India for a lot of the work that the Chinese industry is doing. That sounds a lot easier to do than it really is. Especially since one of the things that China's actually really gone all in on is automation. That you like to think of China as using the labor force as the advantage, but the real goal is to get rid of the labor force altogether. China's being really aggressive at that. So the other thing that's interesting that the Biden administration did is that they said they were going to let stand some Commerce Department regs for uh, Executive Order 13873, which is the one that basically banned Huawei, ZTE, Kaspersky, in which essentially the Commerce Department can single out a company or a set of products and say, you can't buy them in the United States. Uh, and they're limited to information and communications technology. But 
this is a, an authority that the Obama administration never had, and the Trump administration had to make up on the fly. And this is one of the few regs that the Biden administration has already signaled it's going to keep from the Trump era. That's a pretty big deal. It's also one of the few Trump era regulations that I'm all in on. Let's talk about grid security. That should be fun. The And this is, this is just a story today suggesting that China, after the border conflict that they had with India, sent a bunch of malware into India's power grid systems. The Recorded Future did a, a story on that, and it looks as though that did happen. There was actually a, uh, a blackout in Mumbai that might have been related to this, and there's a suggestion that China is essentially holding India's power grid hostage to an end to hostilities. That would be a big deal because up to now, only adventurist powers like uh, Putin have actually used this tool and this would be go a long way toward normalizing it, which has led to a flurry of concern about what the U.S. ought to do about the, the grid and whether the Russians are already in it. And a lot of stories, David, that suggest Russia is in our grid. Yeah, it turns out it's not just Texas politicians, but actually the Russians are messing with the grid. And as you say, there is this wild story in the I think the Times today about the China India conflict which in its kinetic aspects involves troops like fist fighting and hitting each other with sticks and rocks at the at the disputed border region so it's not a shooting war and it I think the the broader really broader context for this is just exploring all of these ways in which nation states are going to conflict contend and fight with one another in a maybe sub law of armed conflict posture from boxing matches and stick fighting to uh, cyber attacks on the Mumbai power grid. Even when they got up above, you know, whatever it is, 13,000 meters, and they were fighting with sticks, the Chinese are reputed to have used microwave weapons that also that basically fried the the Indian troops, totally demoralizing them. Uh, our, and we have obviously a lot of reporting out there on CIA officers who have been the victim of uh, brainwave attacks or whatever. So at some level, there's no news here, which is the Russians are targeting our energy grid. There are stories going back years about the GRU trying to get into the U.S. grid. And frankly, there are stories going back years about the U.S. responding by getting into the Russians' grid. I've read about that by David Sanger in the Times. And then there was the Sandworm a subunit of the GRU that actually disrupted power in the Ukraine the way apparently China may have just done in Mumbai in 2015 and 16 in the Ukraine. And they they were indicted. It's GRU Unit 74455, if you want to know their numerical designation. They were indicted by DOJ in October of 2020. So another interesting aspect about this is following on your prior story, the sort of degree of relative continuity. It, it feels like the Biden administration is going to be concerned about the Russians being in our power grid. And you have some indications that at least the agencies in the Trump administration were concerned about it. I think there's some, the other 
piece maybe to just emphasize here is that it looks like the U.S. power grids are taking some steps, maybe more steps than other uh, industries are taking to do self-regulatory and self-mutual aid. I'm thinking about the Electricity Subsector Coordinating Council and Southern companies work in that, where I think they're I don't know a whole lot about it, but I think they are working and playing well with one another. They have mutual assistance agreements, and I think also with the U.S. government in various ways to keep their systems relatively safe. There's obviously a lot more work to be done. But, I mean, to me at least, this kind of public-private partnership, especially after solar winds, has just got to be the way forward. It's something where we are obviously behind the states like Russia and China that don't, they don't have as much problem with unity of effort across their whole society because of the way they're organized, uh, putting it kindly. So it'll be interesting to see what Ann Neuberger and others in the Biden administration do to try to generate unity of effort within government and then between government and the private sector to deal with cyber threats of all kinds, including those with profound and immediate kinetic consequences like power. So I, I wouldn't be surprised to discover that just as with the um, executive order 13873, which didn't allow the Obama administration to do anything when Huawei started selling a lot of uh, product in the U.S., we're going to discover that what the electric power companies have done so far, which is not insubstantial, but it's all voluntary designed to make sure that nobody gets too mad at them. And the regulatory authority to actually require them to do things that they think are too expensive isn't there, at least not at the federal level and probably not at the state and local level. Remember, airlines didn't want to reinforce cockpit doors and people didn't want to take their shoes off at the airport and so forth. So if you have a truly catastrophic event, sometimes that can galvanize more significant expense loads to shore up and protect the infrastructure. But often it does take something really awful happening before everybody gets on board. And even this most recent set of outages in Texas, which were grim and horrible, as I understand it, I'm not sure it's quite bad enough to really cause the overhaul and investment that would be needed to make things more resilient across the board. Nick? A couple of things on that. I don't think we're at the state. The problem is this is the kind of thing that needs active regulation. And Texas is a good example. Back in 2011, they actually had a situation that was almost as bad in the winter. And the amount of winterization that happened is zero, close enough to zero. I, I, re I remember when Marion Barry was in the Virgin Islands and there was a big snowstorm in the United <laughs> States in, in, in Washington. It was like six, eight inches. And they said, Mayor Barry, what's your plan for, for getting rid of the snow? And he said, my plan is for it to melt. For what it's worth, that's the official snow removal policy. They call it solar removal uh, where I live. And it, so, it works reasonably well. That's my guess is what happened with, with Texas. Once it's melted, it doesn't seem like such a crisis. The other thing is that I think is an interesting dynamic in all of this is both of the cases in question, U.S. and Russia, China and India, are effectively, you need to be able to constrain any escalation because they're nuclear powers. China and India have gotten into shooting wars before, and India has bombs these days. 
And so that's why they're dealing with uh, sticks and rocks on their border dispute, because the worry is if they shift to bullets, it's going to very quickly shift to uh, nuclear missiles. So uh, what we're seeing, though, is then the emergence of grid fiddling as an acceptable mechanism for coercing a power that you can't attack directly. Grid fiddling that does transitory damage. So one of the real problems with so many of these electromechanical systems, and especially the power grid, is you could do electronic attacks that destroy infrastructure. And if you do that, will probably have a very different escalatory pattern. Especially once you look at what our supply chain for all that big, heavy electrical equipment is. Comes straight out of China. And it isn't just that. It's that thanks to efficiency, spare parts are limited. You have a few spare parts sitting near the FedEx hub. And so if any given thing breaks, it gets FedExed overnight and fixed. But this works only if failures are random. If you have a correlated failure where a hundred of the same thing break at the same time because of an electronic attack, now we don't actually have the spare parts in existence to bring the system back up. So I think that the CEOs of uh, the grid companies will say, oh no, we've started to stockpile, but I'm not sure how much testing of those stockpiles is going on. And they're not going to because it's a waste of money. Unless you have a regulation that says you have to stockpile, you don't. Yeah, or a regulation that says if you stockpile it, you can add it to your rate base and earn a a return on it, which is how you get the grid companies to comply. You just tell them that they will be paid for it. Okay, I don't know what to make of this story, Nick. APT31 stole an NSA exploit and used it, it looks like it was privilege escalation. Apparently, according to this story, used it for a couple of years before shadow brokers disclosed that NSA's tools had been compromised. And I'm trying to think to see whether the APT31 is Chinese, so it suggests that the Chinese, in addition to the Russians, were getting some NSA tools. Is this a serious compromise, or is it the kind of thing that you would expect would occasionally happen in the course of investigating NSA intrusions into Chinese systems. It's a serious embarrassment, but this sort of thing doesn't surprise me. Whenever you have a whenever you execute a system compromise, there is a risk involved. And one of the big risks is that somebody captures your tool, discovers the vulnerability you're using, and either issues a patch or in that case, go, hey, this is nicely coded stuff. I'm just going to use it myself. And everybody does that. So one of the Vault 7 things was, oh my god, NS- or, uh, CIA uses other hacking tools to frame them. No, they're just lazy programmers. The first thing you do as a proper lazy programmer, if somebody else writes a good tool for what you want to do, you steal it. And I... I'd bet money the NSA does this. I'd bet money that everybody does this. And this is one of the reasons why you don't go hacking crazy with a zero day. That if you go hacking crazy with a zero day, odds are somebody else is going to find it and either use it against you or disclose it to the vendor. So either way, you lose. So this is the sort of thing that happens. Yep. 
Yeah, uh, that that was my sense is that this happens a lot. It is always embarrassing, but it's not a reflection of some uniquely uh, a bad process at NSA. David, maybe we should just talk briefly. There was a report from the, what was it, the Cyber Threat Alliance and the Center for Cybersecurity Policy and Law called More Sunlight, Fewer Shadows that was really, if I read it, an effort to say stuff like this should be part of a vulnerability equity process. And I don't know if you spent much time with the report. My quick take on it is it's an effort to get other governments to do uh, VEP the way the U.S. does it. It's not a lot of suggestion about changing the U.S. VEP process. Correct, Stuart. That's the that's exactly the takeaway I had for it because, it, and it was interesting, when you teed this up uh, for me, it looked like you were doing so with a certain degree of skepticism of the usual provocative sort. And I was going to delight in responding that having looked at the document carefully, it seems to bash the Europeans far more than the US or even the, the UK. And so for that reason, you ought to like it. it. It does recognize this report. And I think it's actually quite thoughtful and balanced in the sense that it, it does recognize pretty expressly reasons why governments might not disclose certain vulnerabilities, either because they want to exploit them for law enforcement or intelligence purposes, and then or also more secondarily, if there's no good solution available, then obviously you don't want to publicize a particular attack. And I, th I thought there was the also solution. a suggestion that, hmm. look, there are some companies who, when we disclose these vulnerabilities, don't respond particularly well. They just don't do anything. So right. for those companies, there's no point in uh, disclosing. Uh, in t right. If they're not going to try to fix it. Yeah. Yeah. And it, the paper, frankly, in a way that I thought you would like, it applauds the U.S. and the U.K. for having procedures for systematically deciding on how to deal with these issues, whether and to what extent to make something public and how to do it. And it pretty explicitly criticizes the Germans, the Dutch, and some others for not having such systems or at least not having them in a way that anybody can understand or have access to. And then it purports to give some advice on how to design such a system that is remarkably similar to the system that I think one of the authors of this paper uh, created when he was at that, that the NSC, yes. <laughs> in, the US, in the US government. So I, I think it's, it's at least a thoughtful paper, but it's certainly not the paper that I thought it was going to be based on the way you presented it, which is we should never use any offensive cyber capabilities whatsoever and all vulnerabilities should be immediately disclosed at once. That's Whether that's right or wrong, that's not the thesis of this paper. And I'd like to observe that the previous story we talked about, one of the things that happened is the, the particular exploit was patched in the same Microsoft patch sequence that did the Eternal Blue. So this was a case where the NSA, as a result of thinking that tools got lost, telling Microsoft in order to disable their app. So there, there is something to be said for the idea that rushing a patch out is sending up a, a smoke signal saying, there's something here that might help you if you want to attack people who haven't patched uh, and run their updates. Whereas if you can hang on to the vulnerability long enough to change the architecture just a little without, as opposed to patching it. A change in the architecture may take away a whole class of vulnerabilities and burying 
your change in an update rather than a patch allows makes it less likely that uh, bad guys will figure out how to exploit it uh, quickly. Especially when some of the recent Google Project Zero studies show that a lot of patches are actually incomplete. And so a incomplete patch is even worse because it's not just a guide to exploit the unpatch systems, it's a guide to create a zero day to exploit the patched system. Okay, India, Facebook, WhatsApp, Twitter, Mori, there's there are new rules. It looks as though it's they couldn't do this without social media being in disrepute around the world, but it didn't look to me as though this was a major regulatory initiative on the part of India. No, unlike China, India is extremely open to foreign social media companies. And uh, it's the biggest market by numbers for Facebook and WhatsApp and Twitter has been active there. And so they take a great interest in policing them. And so they have new rules that are called the Intermediary Guidelines and Digital Media Ethics Code, which are legally enforceable obligations to take down content. There's been some concern about Twitter not following government orders. So it includes requirements for a grievance redressal mechanism, take down within 36 hours of a legal order, some set within 72 hours where there's a cyber investigation. And Facebook and Twitter have seemed to say, yeah, we'll take a look. We're not necessarily opposed. And I think it probably helps them in some respects because they they face less criticism of self-censorship. They'll receive definite orders that they have to comply with and they'll, then yeah, they and, know and how to they, comply they, with that. The Indians say you have to appoint all these grievance officers because I am quite confident that the woke work, workforce of Twitter and Facebook would be deeply enthusiastic if you said, listen, kid, stick around here long enough and you can be the chief grievance officer. It may be a new, that one of these growth jobs of the, of the new future of work. When everybody's replaced by robots, we'll all be grievance officers. <laughs> exactly, because nobody does grievance better than human beings. Right. All right. Nick, there was there's an effort to create a scandal around law enforcement access to stuff that uh, merchants have access to all the time. And the latest effort to do that is an attack on ICE, because that's the law enforcement agency that everybody loves to hate, saying that they have been using a private utility database that, that tells you where people live uh, to identify, to engage in immigration enforcement. I'm having trouble seeing why this should be a scandal, but it's it was clearly played as a scandal. There's a group of people who think that these sorts of data should not be bought by the government, but they never seem to take the actual leap of why are these databases existing in the first place? That, for example, there's another story about Treasury internal watchdog suggesting that some of this data purchase might not be appropriate under Carpenter when... When the IRS is trying to... There is no legal process needed. Yeah. And I suspect it's people who are uncomfortable with the government having this data but not willing to make the mental leap that the problem is we need to regulate these databases. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, the idea that that you can do this and simply say the government can't get it, uh, when the government, sure, the government can do some very dangerous things to people, but they also are there to protect 
protect against some very serious evils. Whereas the people who want it for uh, commercial purposes, the evil they imagine is that somebody might default on their loan. And I'm sure that's a bad thing, but it's not the same as carrying out a terrorist attack. Also, these uh, databases are often a significant counterintelligence risk that you give me the purchase of data that includes running applications, and I'll tell you where every secret CIA base is. Yeah. So I, th I do think that the Treasury uh, Inspector General report was a almost purely a media event. Uh, Senator Wyden sent a letter to the IG saying, aren't you worried about the possible legal conclusion that the, you, you can't do this under Carpenter? And so what does the inspector general do? He sends back a three-page letter saying, I found out they are doing it sometimes, but not that much. And yes, if the uh, law goes against uh, the IRS, this could be a problem, which is like, duh. Uh, but it was really Senator Wyden creating his own story by sending the letter and getting back pretty dutiful email for, or mail from the inspector general. I'm just not sure that's much of a story. Truth be told, I think uh, Senator Wyden would be better served taking that, observing that the logic actually isn't all that solid. Most of the logic is you can right. buy this stuff and use it as the lever to actually finally start regulating this industry. He'd love to do it, but he, he needs a bunch of people to join him. But I, it, one issue that we've been kicking around for years now is it looks like I, I'm going to be make a guess is going to the Supreme Court. David? The Biden administration very quickly after its arrival at the Department of Justice in late January has petitioned for certiorari on the scope of the border search exception. Lawyers who follow this field know that there is some kind of exception to the normal rules that govern searches and seizures at the border or its functional equivalent. The I think the easy part for the Biden administration was saying that the Ninth Circuit here got it wrong and that something needs to be done because there is a circuit split. The harder part may be at the merit stage uh, saying what the Biden administration thinks the right rule is. The question in particular is how the border search exception applies to cell phones or laptop computers or other electronic media with vast storage capacities. And the Ninth Circuit in its decision here said, Basically, the only permissible basis uh, for the border exception on a cell phone is to search for contraband, uh, meaning basically child pornography on the phone, not mere evidence of other border-related crimes, say drug importation. There were some text messages in this case that suggested the, the person who was crossing the border with the phone may have been involved in some kind of importation scheme. And there's an acknowledged conflict. The Ninth Circuit acknowledges a conflict with a prior 2018 Fourth Circuit decision that does permit searches for border-related crime. So the Supreme Court, I think, generally has not appreciated or supported a distinction between searching for contraband and searching for other evidence of crime in most of its Fourth Amendment jurisprudence, going back to Warden v. Hayden. And so I do think there's a decent chance the Ninth Circuit will get overturned here and that the court might grant certiorari. There is this very explicit conflict. I just think the question will be, how far do they go? Are they going to resolve this in line with the three big cases here, Jones, Riley, and Carpenter, Riley in particular being relevant because that's the case in which Chief Justice Roberts said 
that a cell phone is not like ordinary pocket litter and therefore not routinely searchable incident to an arrest the way, say, a little black paper address book had been and would be historically? Or are they going to say, no, this is not really a case about digital and 21st century technology as they did in Jones, Riley, and Carpenter, but more this is just the plain old border exception and pretty much anything goes at the border. I don't know which of those two lines of jurisprudence will prevail, but I think it's going to be interesting to see. And I think, as you said, I think there's a very good chance this case or one like it gets granted, and then it's going to be bring your popcorn to watch what happens. Uh, It's got to be slow popcorn because we probably won't see a decision in this until June of 2022. Until, right, June of next year. That's right. This one sounds like it might make it to the end of the term next time. Okay. Maury, all this fuss over the Australian media law and Facebook and Google engaging in some pretty hardball tactics to try to avoid paying media, it all seems to have fizzled out as the Australians, my, my sense is Australia blinked, uh, although a lot of media in Australia is going to get some money from Google and Facebook. Yeah, I think it's fizzling out in Australia, but I don't think the issue is fizzling out. There was a great article from Joshua Benton of Harvard's Neiman Lab who described what Facebook did as like Kaiser so saving, willing to shoot its fa- his family and in order to say we won't do any news in Australia. And as a result, they've gotten Australia to back down. It's not exactly clear how they're modifying the law. And it's it really doesn't seem that the law is going to do much to hit the dominance of Facebook and Google and news, which, yeah. you know, and so the bigger problem remains. And there's talk in Europe about trying something similar, which is obviously a whole lot of bigger markets. And Microsoft has supported the movement in Europe to try to negotiate fees because, of course, Microsoft is not as dominant in content. So I think this battle this battle will continue. So I have some sympathy from Facebook on this because they have a news business, but they don't need a new news business. They could they make just as much money without running a news feed. And the idea that anybody could just stick a link to an Australian newspaper into their newsfeed and Facebook would have to pay for it is weird. Uh, and so I think this is more as though Facebook decided to, to shoot a uh, second cousin once removed. It wasn't exactly family. And I think they could do that again in Europe, especially because what they're really saying is, if you make us do it, we'll just cut it out. If we have to negotiate and the question is, how much of a nuisance are these media entities? What do we have to pay them to go away? We'll pay them to go away. So it's up to you whether you want to have a crisis or create a, an income for your media. And in the end, the media, if they, don't think, if they think there's going to be a crisis, they'll take the money. I think that's broadly. I read an article, I've forgotten where, that made the point that Facebook and Google don't care that much about the money it will cost them to support newspapers. And Google has some media projects that they spend a lot of money on. But the real issue for them is related to the point you made about just sticking in a link, is they make money off everybody's free content that they can monetize at no cost. And it's very hard to draw the line. So once they start to, as these lines get blurrier, if they start paying the news organizations, they might have to pay everybody. And that doesn't work for Facebook and Google. Exactly. Not not that they're ever going to pay everybody, but... All right. Uh, 
couple of quick hits. I, I made a joke maybe a couple of times about uh, how people who talked about quantum supremacy were soon going to be uh, hauled before the Trust and Safety Committee of Twitter. It's just about to happen. There are now articles appearing uh, entitled, physicists need to be more careful about how they name things because quantum supremacy, that's just racist. Uh, so I, I, I would like to, to say, if you want uh, next year's news, Today, you got to listen to the Cyberlaw podcast. Maury, there was an article about auditing, eliminating bias in algorithms, and it's another BS article in my view. Uh, 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 do you want to tell us quickly what that's about? The article in the markup said auditing, people are getting all excited about auditing, eliminating bias, but there's kind of ethics washing because people will do an audit and say it's eliminated the bias in their algorithms, but actually it's not done anything of the kind and the algorithms are pretty opaque anyhow and that you, maybe you need regulation of the auditors. So I don't know how many layers deep the regulation goes, but it's not the solution to bias in machine learning. But you know what? Humans are biased too. I'm not convinced that the problem is about machine learning. I'm convinced that the problem is about something deeper. So I predict we know exactly how deep it has to go. It has to go deep enough that people who are harmed by the reverse discrimination, the quotas that are going to be imposed on artificial intelligence by academia, they can't find it. As soon as they hide it sufficiently, we'll discover that, or maybe we won't, that the auditors and the designers of artificial intelligence have basically been a blackjacked into adopting racial quotas, ethnic quotas for most of the tools that they they put forward, but they had to hide it deeply because nobody actually supports that kind of quotification of these services. So that's my guess about how it will all go. And I'll get, offer one last piece worth reading. ProPublica had a piece that a lot of people uh, wanted me to cover, so I, I wasn't going to cover it, but we got a, a lot of feedback on it uh, on LinkedIn and and tweet, Twitter. ProPublica had a piece on how Facebook decided to ban a Kurdish group from Facebook's Turkish audiences. And it is a, you know, it was leaked email right at the top of the, at the agency from Joel Kaplan to, uh, I think, uh, Cheryl uh, and uh, Mark Zuckerberg. And the process at one level is scary that they made this decision, odd that they made it with uh, such information and that their business interests may have been affected. On the other hand, you could read it and you say, what were they supposed to do? The, 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 the Kurdish group is in a shooting war with Turkish arm, the, the Turkish army, and the Turkish army is inclined to think that that entitles them to say these guys should not be allowed to propagandize Turks. And we'd feel the same way. We did feel the same way about ISIS. A, I come away with a sense of just how hard it is to make these decisions, not at all convinced that we should be letting Facebook make those decisions, but it's not clear that we should just leave it up to the Turks either. So it, it, I ended up very deeply conflicted over the story, which I guess is a sign that it's a good story. Okay, now let's turn to our interview-ish segment. I say ish because actually what we decided we'd record for you today was a panel at RSA that I participated in with 
Adam Hickey, who is one of the most senior career officials in the National Security Division of the U.S. Justice Department, particularly with responsibility for things like export controls and counterintelligence. And he and I discuss a recent OFAC ruling or opinion advising people uh, who might pay ransomware that they can't pay ransomware to gangs like Evil Corp that have been sanctioned by the Treasury Department. That obviously raises the stakes for forensic firms, insurers, and victims of ransomware because now you face the prospect of being punished by the U.S. government if you do pay the ransom. That's a uh, hot topic still, uh, and I thought that the discussion that Adam and I had was useful enough and still completely relevant. So we're going to play that for you today in lieu of an interview. We were guided through our discussion by Catherine Lotrianti. Catherine uh, is the founder of the uh, Cyber Project at Georgetown University. She's also a uh, Brent Scowcroft Scholar at the Atlantic Council with the uh, Cyber Statecraft Initiative. And uh, very sophisticated consumer of cybersecurity issues. So Catherine is the moderator and we'll hear first from her as she kicks the discussion off and hands it to Adam Hickey. Let's begin with Adam. I'm hoping that you can lay the grant groundwork, giving us some background on the Department of Treasury's guidance on the payment of ransomware, recognizing that you're not at Treasury Department, but as the government official, current government official in this discussion, I think you can lend some um, insight as to uh, what the guideline says and what it means for people, both in companies that may be victims of ransomware uh, or others in the community that might have some involvement in ransomware. Sure, happy to. And good morning to you, at least as we're recording this. Thanks for having me on the panel. And Stuart, great to see you again. I'm looking forward to this. I think it's going to be a lively and challenging conversation, at least for me. And to our audience, thanks for tuning in. Just to set the baseline or, or lay a foundation for the conversation, in October 2020, Treasury issued an advisory on potential sanctions risks for facilitating ransomware payments. And I'm going to summarize it briefly. Essentially, it reminds its audience that if you engage in transactions with a sanctioned entity or person, you can be civilly liable. And Treasury has the authority to bring an enforcement action, even if you didn't know that's what you're doing. It's a strict liability standard. And that includes four ransomware actors or groups of actors that have been designated in recent years. Since 2016, Treasury has designated CryptoLocker, SAM, WannaCry 2.0, and Drydex under their authority, some of which are related to Iran and North Korean sanctions authorities, and some of which relate to EO13694 and its revisions, which I'll refer to collectively as the cyber EO. What the advisory does is it reminds readers of that authority to bring a civil enforcement action and also the factors that'll affect Treasury's judgment about whether an enforcement action or penalty is appropriate, including whether the American company or entity had a risk-based compliance program in place 
designed to identify and mitigate sanctions risk so that such payments weren't made, and whether the entity or victim, in this case, if we're talking about the context of ransomware, cooperated with law enforcement, reached out to law enforcement, and was transparent with them, which is described as a significant mitigating factor. Now, if you ask OFAC, they will tell you that this guidance isn't news, that all it does is summarize the law that is long existed. And Drydex, I think, was relatively recent. Some of the other sanctions related to ransomware date back some years, I think, back to 2016. But I think the, when the advisory did land, when it became public, it, it was a bit of a, an attention-getting signal because some thought it was a way of targeting ransomware victims and saying you shouldn't pay a ransom if you have ransomware. And if you do, we're going to come get you. If you read the advisory, though, the audience that it's geared towards is not the victim of ransomware so much as the intermediaries that a victim might rely on to make a ransomware payment or might do business with in, in responding to an intrusion. And, and there I'm thinking of forensic firms and insurance companies and, and to some extent financial services firms. And I think the point of the advisory is to go to those intermediaries, get their attention and ensure they have risk-based compliance programs so that if they're helping a client deal with a ransomware incident and there are indications that a payment might benefit or involve a sanctioned entity or person, those intermediaries deflect the payment, prevent it from taking place. Now you might ask, why do this? If you get hit by ransomware, it's a very stressful day for the victim, right? It may be that they don't have adequate backups. It might be that the backups themselves were compromised by the ransomware. There may not be much of a choice. So doesn't this make a hard day worse for that particular victim? That's Probably right if you look at it only from that victim's perspective. But ransomware is the classic tragedy of the commons, where as an individual entity, you may or may not be better off paying the ransom. But all of us are worse off if you do, because every dollar that goes to the ransomware operator or designer expands the market for it. It makes it more profitable. It ensures that there'll be more ransomware in the future. And it's even worse if it's North Korea or Iran that's in the background sponsoring the ransomware, right? Because the funds don't just further criminal goals, they can be tied to nuclear proliferation or terrorism. So that I think is the policy case for reminding those intermediaries like insurance companies of the sanctions authority and the impact. And the hope, I think, is that by shrinking rewards from ransomware payments, you potentially shape the behavior of ransomware actors and constrain the market for it in a way that benefits all of us. I'll stop there. Stuart, can you give us your take, having carefully looked at the guidance? I know it's not been out that long. And as Adam rightly pointed out, Maybe it's not new news, in other words. It's, this was based on already authorities. But what's your take looking at the broader picture? Is this useful? Do you anticipate a change in the behavior of those conducting the cyber attacks, but more specifically, those that are the victims of the ransomware? 
So this is not new for people who practice law in front of OFAC uh, and who do sanctions law. None of the principles that were laid out are at all surprising to people who do that. But it's completely new in the context of ransomware payments, where people had only begun to think about this and mainly to think about it in terms of the liability of the company that was the victim of the attack. That's the one place where I might disagree with Adam. It's true that this is aimed in substantial part at the facilitators of payments, but before it was aimed at the facilitators, it was aimed at the victims of ransomware. If you pay it, you are clearly subject to liability under OFAC. If you pay it to somebody who's subject to sanctions, what is mildly novel as a factual matter is that the treasury is calling out the people who negotiate these things, the people who do the forensics and say, we think that uh, this is an okay payment or not an okay payment based on the evidence from the attack, the insurance companies that say, yes, we'll cover you for this. And maybe the financial services people who, who actually move the money. Those folks probably had not because they didn't have a reason to understand the details of OFAC law, didn't understand that facilitating this payment that violates OFAC sanctions is itself a violation of the sanctions. That's clear enough as a matter of law. It probably was a surprise to the people who do this to some degree, depending on how much legal advice they got before they did this. This is probably, and I, I think it's worth saying, that there was in August, two or three months before this came out, a very notorious ransomware attack on Garmin. And Garmin, everyone surmises, I'm not sure they've confirmed this, paid the ransom, got their data back, and not long thereafter, which, is, which does forensics, announced that it had decided that the particular kind of ransomware that was used to attack Garmin, though they mentioned Garmin, not at all, was not necessarily Evil Corp, which was subject to sanctions. So it was a controversial analysis, but it was a public analysis. And it was widely viewed as a justification for Garmin to pay and for others to pay if they were subject to wasted locker attacks. And it's not unreasonable to view what Treasury did as an effort to make sure that people who stepped into this gray zone understood that they were taking the risk that if they were wrong, they had violated the law. The fact that they didn't know for sure they were wrong doesn't matter. If Treasury later finds that you made a payment to somebody who's subject to sanctions, all the goodwill and all the reasonable precautions in the world don't prevent you from being held to have violated the law. All they will do is reduce the level of sanctions. And, and the advisory gives us a couple of practical tips for ways to reduce the, your likelihood of liability, which are also designed to, to say, don't get too cute with your attributions because a, we're going to be watching. And if we don't think you did it in good faith. If you didn't do it pursuant to a careful compliance plan, we're going to hammer you. So, so if I could follow up with both of you on that, first to Stuart, the list of intermediaries that you discussed as potentially being very much affected by this, would 
Could you throw in law firms in that too? So yeah, they did not include law firms. I suspect that was a careful decision, but uh, I, I have advised plenty of American general counsels or uh, associate general counsels working in foreign firms that they can be subject to facilitation liability if they are not careful about the advice they give. There's a little more leeway because you can give compliance advice and not be guilty of facilitation. So that may be why they left law firms out. But yeah, I think law firms that are too cute here and develop a reputation for a good law firm to go to if you want cute advice are probably at risk. So if that takeaway from this, could it be, and, and, and Adam and Stuart, I'd like to get both your views, but maybe Adam first on this, is one, if I'm reading this and I'm not, I'd say I'm a victim, but not a lawyer, haven't consulted lawyers, but I'm reading this guideline, the new guidelines, trying to understand the state of things and have been a victim, is one takeaway, is it recommended that the first call is to FBI? Does that help? Does that help a potential entity that's been a victim who wants to pay, right? What benefit is there? And and should they call the FBI? How does that help them? The answer to that question will always be yes. From my perspective, you should call the FBI ransomware or not, but it will help in this specific context too. I think If you're the victim and you've been hit with ransomware, you're probably not reading treasury guidance that day. You've probably called your, if you have them on retainer or you referred to someone, you call an incident responder. Your network's not locked. And if your IT department can't do it, you need to restore from backup or you need to figure out what's going on. Maybe you don't call them. Maybe you try to make the payment yourself. But I I think at some point you're going to hit your insurance company, forensic firm, or some other I'll call them an intermediary or a facilitator, which Stuart's word. They hopefully will have read this advisory. And then in the course of the response, they will say, this might be a Drydex variant. And so we can't help you make this payment. At what point you call the FBI, maybe you call them the minute your system's locked. Maybe you call them after you've called your lawyer, your insurance company, and your forensic firm. At that point, FBI might be able to help you understand better what variant it is. They might tell you with greater clarity that it's not a sanctioned variant, that actually it looks different. It looks like a false flag. Or they might tell you, confirm what your others have said, which is, yeah, we're not sure. There are indications this is a a such and such ransomware and that's been designated. That does make it harder for you to pay. But let's take another example where no one's seen this before. It's a new variant. There's not a lot of information out on the internet about who's responsible for it. You've called the FBI. No one tells you this is a sanctioned entity. You make the payment. And six months later, it turns out that this was Drydex 3.0, but you didn't know that. And let's say it's public because you're a large company. So the fact you paid the ransom, it becomes known. The benefit of having called the FBI is that if Treasury reads the newspaper that you paid the ransom and they know that it was happened to be a sanctioned entity, the fact you called the FBI and involved them in a certain way in your decision-making will be a significant mitigating factor. And I'm not aware of any circumstance where someone has done that, where we, the Justice Department, have come after them criminally or Treasury has imposed a penalty. I think this is a hard I don't know if this is intuitive, but I really do think the point of the advisory is to get people to design programs to detect risk 
and did not make the payment. It, it really doesn't work as a policy matter just to go after people after making the payment. That's not the goal. The goal is frankly to make it unpalatable to you to make the payment, or at least to make it difficult for you to do so because no one will help you make the payment. And I think echoing Stuart's point, I think if there were to be a firm that says, we're gonna turn a blind eye to this and develop policies and help victims out, we feel really, let's say, let's say it's called Empathy Corp instead of Evil Corp. We really feel bad for ransomware victims. So you can come to us and we will tell you no matter what, this is not sanctioned ransomware. We have great, we don't see any indication of that. At some point, we, the Justice Department, will probably catch on to this. And that will take you from being a strictly liable entity to an entity that's behaving with at least conscious avoidance of the facts, if not in criminal intent. And that will expose that intermediary to prosecution. So I think that's the way to think of the the chain of behavior we're trying to encourage is if you create policies that will prevent the payments, we're less interested in the one or two that slip by because the compliance program maybe just doesn't catch everything. But if you haven't designed that program, in fact, you've done the opposite to try to facilitate these payments, then you're exposed to a much more significant sanction. Yeah, I think uh, victims of ransomware are going to find that most of the intermediaries have been pretty thoroughly deterred from offering close to the line advice on this. Because from their point of view, what they make for one engagement is simply not enough to justify a large risk of an investigation and substantial penalties under the OFAC regime. So your insurance company is certainly not going to want to assure you that it will cover your payments if it thinks there's a risk that it's a a sanctioned entity. And probably that's true for the forensics and the negotiators that you might hire to to try to arrive at a, a suitable ransom. So this probably is having the effect that was intended, which is to make it harder to make payments to people who are reasonably believed to be subject to sanctions. I do think there is a question whether that makes sense. OFAC's rules were originally designed to uh, impose penalties on Nazi Germany while we were at war with them. And the same in World War I. It is a nuclear weapon and the penalties are enormous. And the structure is designed to make sure people stay well away from anybody who's a sanctioned entity. But we have begun using it in a very fine-tuned way. The U.S. government has begun using it person by person to cut people off from the banking systems. And it has worked to some degree in that context. But in this context where people are really up against it, it really does simply add to the pain the victim suffers. Uh, And I'm not sure it's really going to affect uh, the people who are serving ransomware. There's no indication that I've seen that they are hiding their their old protocols and tools and techniques in an effort to make it easier for people to decide that this is really not evil corp and so I can pay them. Uh, If they're not even doing that, then they're not really very deterred by the, the imposition of sanctions. And the only people who are suffering are the companies that are subjected to a a second risk of liability if they pay. So if we, coming up, Stuart, if if it ends up being that the effect is that these intermediaries are deterred then, and they're not 
going to be giving any advice that they um, might otherwise have been given to these victims. Where are we leaving the victims then? Those that feel that they need to pay this ransomware, they don't have backups. For whatever reason, they've made a determination for their own interest, for their company, they're going to have to pay this ransom. Will that is that going to deter them? And, and I would like to see, do we have any idea of how this looks globally? Are we then putting American entities in a situation where, as you said, if, if the bad guys are going to continue to conduct these attacks and maybe look elsewhere outside the United States, if they're not getting their money here, how are we placing our American companies vis-a-vis -vis others that might not be under the same restrictions or Department of Treasury uh, guidelines? If it was working, then we would see ransomware gangs avoiding American companies or companies with substantial U.S. assets because they thought it was going to be harder to get paid. And then they would pick on others. And it's a variant of what we have seen, I think, in the area of terrorist hostage taking, where the U.S. very hard line until fairly recently has made it unproductive to, to kidnap Americans for ransom. If you happen to kidnap them, it's probably more likely you'll kill them than that you will hold them for ransom because the U.S. has been so uh, tough on ransom payments. And that has exposed other Western countries to more kidnappings than Americans. So it could work, but I don't see a sign that it is having that effect, which makes me think that maybe these sanctions aren't really biting for the ransomware gangs. So I think it's a little, the difficulty with measuring the effect of the policy is it's, in, it's inherently going to involve unknown. Remember that the not all ransomware payments are subject to sanctions, right? It's only payments to sanctioned entities of which there are four clusters or groups. So one interesting question is what's the impact on ransomware creators or operators who are not yet sanctioned and do they shape their behavior in any way? knowing that if they become the worst of the worst to realize the standard for sanctions under IEPA, right, a threat to national security or economic interests, they get put on this list and it makes it that much harder for them to move money. It makes it, it, it cuts off their access to them. Do they then try to stay below that threshold? Does that mean they, it's better to be when you're, when the bear is chasing you, you don't have to outrun the bear. You just have to outrun the person running next to you. So by that logic, do you just, are you better being a little quieter, a little less ambitious, and therefore victimizing fewer Americans or focusing more on Western Europe? I can't answer that, but I, there's a certain logic to that driving, you know, that decision calculus. And to the to your question, Catherine, about the victim that has to pay, that that feels like a compelling case, but frame it in terms of paying money to to Iran or to a terrorist organization. Yes, it's awful if your relative or your business is held hostage by a terrorist group. But we are all much worse off if you give them even more money to encourage this behavior to the point about hostage taking. Fortunately, there are ways victims can protect themselves to some great degree from ransomware. And it's some of the concepts Stuart mentioned, like backups and the like. And to take Treasury's position, just because you didn't take the right steps to prevent or mitigate harm to your network doesn't mean the rest of us should have to contend with a, a richer North Korea or Iran. Thank you for your thoughts on, on that both. I wanted to not, it's not completely unrelated, but it's tangential, I, tangential to the, 
to the guidelines. I wanted to see if we could say or get your opinions on kind of some general efforts or maybe even specific efforts from the government and others with respect to the release of private emails. It's not necessarily ransomware, but I think this is an important thing that in which maybe some of the same victims of ransomware would be very concerned about emails being released out there and, and what the government, DOJ, FBI, or others could do maybe to assist these individuals in this. I'd love to hear from both of you. Maybe Adam, you can start with a perspective from what the government might be able to do. And Stuart, maybe some views at how effective this could be and useful it might be. Sure, happy to. And it's a logical segue from this because as you, you probably know, ransomware operators are now turning to extortion. If the victim says, I'm not gonna pay you, I have backups, whatever. The next move might be to say, great, you have the emails, but so do I and I can release them, and what do you think about that? So you're seeing a a blending from ransomware into extortion. This isn't new, right? The first time I saw this was in the attack on Sony Pictures Entertainment in, I think it was about 2014, where in addition to breaking the company's network, the actors, North Koreans in this case, did dump a lot of the material on the web at various locations around the world. One of the benefits of working with the FBI and the Justice Department is our network of contacts with law enforcement around the world. And so while a lot of that data, most of it wasn't hosted here, it was hosted on systems around the world, we were able to reach out through law enforcement liaison relationships and ask the authorities in those countries to use whatever authorities they have to try to mitigate that. And here, if it's hosted here, although you tend not to see that quite as much, we would go to the providers, alert them to what they're doing. And in the case of a sanctioned entity, if you're providing server space to North Korea or Iran here, and and we tell you that's what you're doing, and you don't stop the transaction, don't stop providing that, you then become potentially exposed to a penalty under the same authority. Because you're, imagine the ransomware operator that's also leased the DC Leaks site here, right? That you're doing business with them. So that is one way the government can also help mitigate the harm to the company. It's not perfect once it's on the internet, it's on the internet. There is a difference between how widely accessible difference in impact, depending on how widely accessible the material is. So that's another reason to call the FBI, I think, is that we can be helpful. Uh, Stuart, so do we have a silver lining in calling the FBI? Do we see some advantages? There is clearly that the Treasury has made it absolutely clear. You bring in law enforcement. It doesn't have to be the FBI. It could be the Secret Service. It could be ICE. It could be, it could probably be local law enforcement. And you make a full disclosure, a timely disclosure to them. Interestingly, they did not ask that you ask law enforcement whether it's okay to pay. So you might be able to tell them, I'm going to pay. I wanted to bring you in and tell you all this stuff because it's part of my compliance plan, but I'm paying. So that's a, a possibility. Getting back to the the doxing, the, the hacking and releasing of data, I think there's there are options to consider ever since, frankly, an operation like that cost Hillary Clinton the presidency. Silicon Valley has much, been much less enthusiastic about WikiLeaks and um, Julian Assange. And, the, and they probably would be open to refusing to allow the distribution of hacked materials. Some of the companies say it's a violation of their terms of service. And one thing I've often wanted to try is nobody carries, if they can avoid it, copyrighted materials. It turns out that 
all of our emails are copyrighted as we write them. And so if you were to find a way to register copyright for at least some of the emails that might end up being released, you'd have very powerful sanctions on secondary distribution of those, those documents. It's probably worth considering if you think you're likely to be a target. Although I, I will confess, this is an idea that has occurred to me as we were speaking. So there may be a legal problem with it, but it's worth considering. Oh, well, I, that's interesting. The problematic emails are probably not the ones you're gonna rush to copyright, but I think reaching back 20 years, the copyright vests as you fix it in a tangible form. So I don't know that you have to actually register it to have some of the protection. That's right. It is It is already copyrighted, but to get the benefit of the hammer of $250,000 for every publication, you need to have registered it. And you don't have to register the, the, your scary ones. Is if, if No one is going to go through and only release the scary ones. They're just going to dump the whole thing. And you just say, as long as I have a few canaries in there that can uh, <laughs> announce that the whole coal mine is going down, it may be enough. This is why you get paid the big bucks, Stuart. So that's something new, actually. That's a good takeaway. And I think that we've given some potentially many people in the audience some food for thought. They, they may be calling their or asking their in-house counsel about copywriting emails. I, I think I myself might, would consider that, especially if I was a CEO of a company. I, I might think about that. I think we're coming up close to the, our time limit, but I wanted to ask both of you for any concluding comments or advice that you wanted to share, anything you wanted to highlight or emphasize or take away for folks to remember from the session? You know, I just say that I think a common theme is that you're better off calling law enforcement and working with us. There's a temptation to avoid being pregnant with knowledge, but the system isn't built to reward that. And even if you think paying the ransom is your only option, it, it could leave you less secure in the future because there's no guarantee that actor is going to pull every uh, tool they have off your network. If you pay once, why wouldn't you pay again? And it leaves you vulnerable to being exploited a second time. And Stuart? So I, the OFAC sanctions are a nuclear weapon and you don't use those to, to get rid of the cockroaches in your home. And, and that's the, the worry here. I would say if there's a lesson here for business, it's that we shouldn't be applauding when the treasury announces that they are imposing sanctions on another ransomware entity, unless we know it works. Because if they impose the sanctions and it doesn't work, it's really just imposing sanctions on the businesses that are victims. And we need to be much more careful about that. So before we wrap up, um, to the point of when will we know what it will look like if it's working? I think, Stuart, you've outlined that. Adam, you did too. How long will this take? Do you see? It's a big hypothetical, I guess. We know ransomware is probably not going to, in the near future, doesn't, looks like this, doesn't look like they're slowing down. But will this take a year before we can come back and say, oh, these guidelines look like they're working? Or is this um, a longer term? Do we have to wait longer in, in which to get a good assessment of effectiveness, do you think? I think if you, in terms of discouraging payments, I think we agree it's working. And so that, by that measure, it is a success, right? We think it's already slowing or stopping payments to designated entities. Wow. If your measure is it working and bankrupting the ransomware operators, no, and I don't know that we will ever know that. We'll never know how much more they would have made. We, wouldn't, we won't ever know what the other unsanctioned operators are doing differently. So I think it sets up a burden we can't carry if you frame it that way. 
But if you think about kidnapping by terrorist groups or the like, we all agree it's better that they don't have resources. And so if we agree that discouraging the payment of resources makes them, just gives them less access to ransomware, we know they're not getting an extra 250 Bitcoin or a thousand Bitcoin, then it's working. So I don't think this is going to work by itself ever. We are going to have to find other ways to sanction and impose difficulties on uh, ransomware gangs. It's clearly cryptocurrency that has made this an easy reward for ransomware gangs and finding ways to track and discourage illicit use of cryptocurrency is really critical. And then finding other ways to discourage the the havens for the ransomware. Maybe we could persuade Vladimir Putin that he's been the victim of Drydex. That gang will find no uh, refuge in Russia. But we're going to have to continue to, to work on this. This is a feel-good solution for the U.S. government rather than a real solution to the problem. So w- with that, maybe we wrap it up and we will might have to be back on this topic to discuss what progress we're seeing or more creative ways to tackle the issue. All right. Thanks to uh, Maury, Nick, and David for our news roundup. And thanks also to Catherine and Adam for uh, that great discussion of OFAC and the ransomware advisory. Before we close out, I want to remind everybody that we are still thinking about the possibility of hiring somebody who can be a combination sound engineer producer, intern, researcher for the Cyber Law Podcast. Haven't made a decision on that, but if you know somebody who'd be interested, send their particulars to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. I want to thank Weissman Sound Design for our music. This has been episode 351 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Please do send us feedback, the same address as before. Nominate people to be uh, interviewed and you might get our highly coveted Cyber Law Podcast mug. Leave us a review and if it's entertaining or entertainingly abusive, we might read it on the air. And then join us next week as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.